All right. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Stories of Selling Human podcast. I'm your host, Alex Smith, and I started this podcast because I truly believe everyone in the world will someday be faced with a situation, it could be business, it could be personal, that requires you to create change. I think we all want to be heard, seen, and understood, but the people who get our attention and convince, persuade, or influence us are not just salespeople. I think they're great humans throughout all walks of life that we're drawn to. I'm going to share their stories here so we can tap into what makes us human, practice our human skills, and ultimately we'll all become better at selling by being human. All right, gang, this is a guest I've been looking at for a long time to want to talk to. He's got a great book. This guy, he says he fell into sales. I don't know what he means by that, but we'll talk about that. But he loves the decision science surrounding sales. He's had a career encompassing multiple roles in sales. He's been a, a chief revenue officer. He founded his own sales consulting business. He's a speaker, a workshop leader at Sales Mellon. He's a podcast host at the Sales History Podcast, a new podcast that we'll talk a little bit about the history. And his first book, The Transparency Sale, has earned international bestseller status and has won three bestseller sales book awards. And he has a new sales book coming out in the beginning of 2022 called The Transparent Sales Leader. Please welcome none other than Todd Capone to the podcast. I actually have an applause track that I should have hit after that because that, <laughs> that was an awesome In intro. post-edit, you'll hear the applause <laughs> that we give you. So Todd, I wanted to bring you on. We'll nerd out and geek out. I love how you, you call yourself the transparency nerd and really just all about like how people make decisions. We'll talk through some of that, but I want to have people get to know you a little bit. So my first question for you, can you remember your earliest memory? Maybe it was in your professional career or personal life you know, a lesson learned where maybe you were selling something, maybe you were presenting something where you weren't being totally transparent and it affected you negatively and, and how that play out in your life. Yeah. Well, there's one thing that jumps out at me. So if you think back to the way that I was kind of brought up in sales, that's probably a question you're going to ask at some point anyway. So I might get ahead of myself here, but like my dad was always a sales guy. He passed away a year and a half ago at the age of 98. So incredible long life but I was writing the dedication for the next book and it's to him. And I called him the original transparent sales leader because he was one of those guys that just always believed in doing right by the customer and came home from work every day with a big smile on his face and was best friends with his customers to the point where he was actually the best man in one of his customers' weddings, right? So like that was the kind of relationships he had. But, you know, as I moved into my career, which is, been mainly in the tech space. Like my first sales job was selling overnight shipping for a company called Airborne Express that doesn't exist anymore, which was like a beating every day. But my first couple of technology companies were like Computer Associates and SAP back in the late 90s. And they literally taught the solution consultants, the people that are demoing, that the answer is always yes. So a customer says, hey, can you do this? They were literally taught that the answer is always, yeah. I was taught the answer is always yes, because how are you going to find out it's not? And there's some trickery around saying, like, say, Alex, you asked me, hey, does your technology make toast? I could potentially say yes, but there's probably a better way to get at toast, right? Like you could do our technology, but your toast is going to be optimized if you actually go buy a toaster for 20 bucks at Walmart. So like that was the way that they did it, but it always felt 
gross to me to be able to say yes to everything. And over time, I started to realize that that's not the way to create relationships that your customers buy from because they don't trust that. The customers stay, they want to buy more, and they want to advocate. I just don't believe that building that on a foundation of trickery is the way to go. I love that analogy too. Not everything should or could make toast and or, you know, <laughs> should you present it as it. I think back to my career now. So now I'm, I'm in software sales in my day job. And I always say there's two terms. I've heard this early on in my career and someone said this and I just take it with me and I say it all the time in software sales. As a buyer, you hear two words a whole lot in software sales. And those two words are custom or configure. Mm-hmm. And the first means a lot of usually money, complexity, It certainly warranted a lot of scenarios, custom, and I say it just like this to clients, custom work is absolutely needed. However, if I told you I could custom make, and anyone can custom make anything, like if the CEO wants to just say, you're our best client, we're just going to like put all of our developers on your project and custom make something that could take a year, a couple months, it could never be done. It might not work completely correctly, but like, that's a lot of trust that you're like giving to somebody you've just met a lot of times, but people want that because they feel like, oh, they're just working just for me. Where I say configure is you want to be able to have the framework that you ultimately can do what you need to do. And then you control what is done. You turn on and off what's needed. The framework or infrastructure is there for you to do what you need. And if it's not, I'm going to be the first one to tell you and, and maybe tell you to go look somewhere else. Or if you only need a certain thing, I'll let you know. There's a lot of people I've met recently at my company too. They didn't have a sales background, but they're like, I actually try to get the person to, I I leave opportunities for an out and say, hey, if you're only looking for this one thing, we're probably not the best fit. You're going to spend a lot more money with us than you will somewhere else. Why don't you look somewhere else? Come back if you don't find what you need. But you know, yeah, you you made me think of that with the toaster analogy. There's a couple of things you mentioned that just triggered things for me. Like number one, you'd mentioned in my opening in the bio that I'm a sales history nerd too. And there's a quote from 1919 author named Arthur Dunn. He wrote the book, Scientific Selling and Advertising, wrote a couple of other ones, but he's got a quote in that book that is, if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it, right? Like my favorite quote of all time, but the behavioral science screams, and I'm surprised that we haven't seen more B2B companies do this, but it screams, set accurate expectations and consistently meet them. And what I mean by B2B companies, I don't see doing this is, In the B2C world, there's a lot of companies that embrace what they give up to be great at their core, like Ikea, right? Like you go to an Ikea and you walk in and you know you're in for it because they give you a map. Like if you have to go to a retail store and they give you a map, you know it's going to be a nightmare. You can't find what you're looking for. When you do, there's nobody around to help you. So you have to take a picture of the code with your phone or write it down because you get to go to the warehouse to pick it, pack it onto a cart that doesn't have brakes, jam it into the back of your car, Tetris style, F-bomb your way through that, drive (laughs) it home, open the box, there's 150 parts, no words on the work instructions other than like the word Sparta or whatever the name of the thing is. You F-bomb your way through that, and then you look at it and you're like, that looks pretty good. We should have bought the end tables with this bedroom furniture. And Ikea is the number one furniture retailer in the world for 14 straight years. They embrace that, like they have billboards that say that, like, you know, simple. we suck at this. But (laughs) the point being that they say to the world, hey, like, here's what we don't do. 
And we don't do those things so that we can give you modern Scandinavian design furniture that you didn't pay much for. Costco, it's another great example. You gotta have a membership. You go in, there's limited brand selection and you gotta buy, like you want ranch dressing? Hope you like it, because here's a gallon, right? Like it's crazy. Like there's a woman at the door checking your receipt to make sure you didn't yeah. steal anything. Yeah. And they're the number two retailer in the US and their renewal rate, their subscription renewal rate is in the high 90s of percent. Now, every company gives up something to be great at their core. And when we do that, we create really strong relationships with our customers because we know I'm going there and this is what it's going to be like. When we try to pretend to be all things to all people, we are over-promising and we are going to most certainly under-deliver. And that's a recipe for disaster, right? Like none of us would ever want to do that. Yet I see B2B salespeople doing that because I think part of it is systemic in that we as salespeople are measured by getting the deal done. And typically we hand it off to somebody else and they'll worry about it. And, and unless we can see the fruits of that labor and really build the relationship, it's going to be a hard thing to overcome. But in the end, when we're setting accurate expectations and needing them, that builds trust, that builds customers that stay, buy more and advocate on your behalf. So I think it starts there. It's about overpromise, underdeliver. But, and I know this might sound counterintuitive to everybody, but under-promising and over-delivering, not a good idea either. And here's why. It creates a short-term spike in satisfaction level, sure. But over time, it is a form of lying and you can't keep up. Meaning there is what I call expectation inflation that happens. That, Alex, if you're consistently under-promising and over-delivering to me, I'm going to take what you tell me and I'm going to inflate it. And when I don't get that, I'm going to be disappointed. And so like, there's a ton of behavioral science around that's kind of a a rant, but I'm a believer in thinking through like the greatest companies in the world. They embrace the things they give up to be great at their core. And I think instead of word trickery, like leave the, the tricks for the junior high magic show and just be honest, if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it, lead with that stuff. And you'd be shocked at the relationships that you build and how fast your sales cycles go. I love it. I love it. I, I can't let you get away without then going to the other reverse because I've read in the 10X rule that you should always over-promise and over-deliver. And I feel like right. that might be a, a little bit of a, a trickery as well because we all want to just overperform and just work hard and like just deliver these massive experiences. And that's just not always realistic in every scenario or scalable. And I think we get like obsessed with customer focus to like customer obsession, right? And we of course be that, but but you're saying even maybe like the experience is always in the eye of the beholder. I mean, ultimately we're projecting so much of what we think the experience should be without just, you know, maybe even leaning farther on just what you're saying is like, just be upfront. If you tell me it is what it is, I would have much more respect for you. I have had so in our personal lives, I, I would love for you to like think of a time in your personal life, like, like you just said it, like, you know, with the, the um, IKEA example, but like when you're like, man, like I was so much more frustrated if the person just told me that the line was going to be two hours long or that they were understaffed 10 people because nobody showed up uh, on their shift today at this restaurant. I at least would have been like, okay, uh, like I would have either, you know, stayed and waited or I'd just been like, hey, okay, I'm, maybe I need to go to another restaurant. So what would your alternative be to the OPUD 
under promising for deli- <laughs> oh, or, or, no. o- over over just deliver I, I mean listen from a behavioral science perspective our brains we are wired to trigger a decision when we are able to accurately predict what mm-hmm. our experience is going to be like there's a reason why we all read reviews before we buy something that we've never bought before that's of medium to high consideration but even more important there's a reason why 85% of us go to the negative reviews first meaning we skip the fives and go right to the fours, threes, twos, and ones. And there's a reason why a product on a website that has an average review score between a four, two and a four, five is optimal for purchase conversion. Meaning a product that has negative reviews right alongside it will sell at a higher conversion rate than a product that has nothing but perfect five-star reviews. That's when a website's acting as a salesperson, but also when we as human beings act as salesperson, the same exact dynamic happens. Our brains know that perfection is not possible subconscious level like even consciously obviously we know perfection is real but subconsciously our brain is wired to go all right is the juice going to be worth the squeeze and if all i hear about is how great the juice is and how nutritional it is and i don't hear about the squeeze every word that's coming into my ears is going through a basically a bs filter that's saying, whoa, 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 until I can get at the squeeze, I don't know whether this juice prediction is real or not. That to your point about lines and about like when we go to an amusement park and the roller coaster line says 45 minute wait from here, we as human beings, our brain goes, um, you know, that's probably about right. It's probably going to be 45 minutes anywhere. And I really want to ride this. So I'm in. And if it turns out to be 40 minutes, I'm cool. If it turns out to be 50 minutes, I'm cool. If it turns out to be an hour and a half, I'm pissed. But that's the way that our brains work, right? Like come within a standard deviation or two and we're cool. But on the other hand, if we go to like, there's an example I, I often talk about, which is, you know, my kids love ice cream. They love Culver's here in Chicago. Uh, it's frozen custard. It normally a fast line. But one day we pulled into the parking lot my kids were fired up for Culver's. My wife and I were in the car and we get in the, the drive through line is 14 cars long. We have no idea why. We don't know if it's going to be fast, but it looked like hell on earth. We didn't say anything, but even my kids lean forward and they're like, hey, can we just go home? Like, really? It's Culver's. It's ice cream. And they're like, we just, it's not worth it. So even children's brains are wired like that. So to your point about set accurate expectations, set reality. Mm -hmm. Because when we do that, go back to that four, two to four, five on a website, that our brain needs to know that something is given up to be great at the core, either there's a flaw with the product around something that maybe I care about, there's something a competitor does better, there's a piece of functionality that's not ready, the price is kind of high from a perception perspective, but when we get into it, you'll get it. Those are the types of things that when we lead, 85% of us go to the negative reviews before the positive reviews for a reason. It's the way that we are wired as human beings to try to predict what our experience is going to be. So that over-promise, over-deliver thing, I think that that's doing two bad things. First, it's triggering the BS filter in our brains, right? So that first conversation when you're over-promising, my brain is going... Yeah, I I doubt it. And then you're over delivered. You got to wait until the delivery actually happens to be able to assess whether that was accurate. Let's say 
you overpromise and you overdeliver. Cool. What's the next problem? How do you keep up with that? We're on this life one time. Like, what are we doing? So just like set accurate expectations and meet them. Yeah, that's, that's, it seems very, very common sense or profound, but we always want to just work harder and please the clients. I think, uh, well, you know, can I mention one thing there? Yeah, go ahead. Like, yeah, about the, like the, the overpromise or the, the, even the underpromise overdeliver, right? Like why that goes so wrong. There is like, I have lots of examples with my kids because I keep seeing stuff all the time. There's a restaurant here that we go to that the first time we went, you, know, you expect to sit down, get your menus, have server come up, get your drinks, take your order, give you your food, you get your check, right? That's the standard. Well, at this place, all of that was the same except when we got the check. With the check came two perfectly cooked chocolate chip cookies for the kids with milk. And the kids are just like, this is great, right? They're so excited. So it wasn't even an under-promise over-deliver. It was just an over-deliver. It was we had an expectation that we were getting the check. They were up here with it. And the kids loved it, right? They were so excited that they wanted to come back. We go back the second time, same thing, right? But now they're less excited because it's an expectation that's set. But guess what happened on the third time? Third time we no get cookie. there. Now we, we got the cookie, but it was not freshly baked. It clearly had been baked earlier and it was hard. The kids were pissed. Like they were, <laughs> it does, it does right. all that that good in a way, you know. Yeah, exactly. They're just like, oh, this cookie's not warm. Like my, uh, and so you just got to be really careful. Just figure out what you're gonna do. Be consistent with it. If you're gonna suck at something, consistently <laughs> suck at it. If you're gonna be great at it, you better be great consistently at it, or you will erode satisfaction. So you just be careful. It's really just about the whole concept of transparency. Is hey, here's what we're not great at. Here's what we are great at. And if you're cool with those things, then let's keep talking. And if not, let's part as friends, go do your search. And like you said, let's, we'll come back around if you're not able to find other options and see what we can do. Yeah. Builds trust, speed sales cycles. You qualify in faster. And even more importantly, if you're going to lose, you lose faster. So that get to use that precious inventory of yours that is limited that is your time on the opportunities you should win. So true. I have been in the situation where, you know, at the very end, you know, we were the silver medalist and it was like, we would have, but for this and that, I was like, well, we're very similar on this area that you're saying that we're, you know, you made the decision on, did that come into consideration? Then it was like, well, it was really like the price and, oh, okay. So we could have talked about that. What was it? And I was like, this was never mine to win in the first place. I could have called that out way earlier and probably saved myself a lot of work in, in exactly. doing that. So, yeah, there's like a piece of that when you think about the old school philosophy that we shouldn't talk about the price until we've established value at the end. I think that is absolute BS. And here's why. First of all, the term sticker shock has never been used in a positive context in the history of the world, right? Like sticker shock is always negative. Number two, to what you just said. If we're talking about a six-figure solution to a four-figure buyer, one of us is in the wrong conversation. Shouldn't we figure that out now versus you know, three months from now? When If you're a startup, you just burn three months of cash on an opportunity you weren't going to win ever. But even vice versa, if you're talking about a four-figure solution to somebody that's got a six-figure expectation, there's a mismatch there. That's part of transparency is starting the conversation with, 
Hey, Alex, listen, before we get too deep into this, based on what I know about your organization, we're going to get deeper into it. Our pricing is based on these components, and it's probably going to be between X and Y. Now, if we're way off on that, let's address that now. And if we're not, then let's keep going. And again, it's based on these variables. If those variables change, obviously the pricing is going to change, but let's make sure we're aligned on this. You'd be shocked how much that builds trust and how much time that saves and how much it avoids what you're just talking about happening after you just invested three, four, five months in an opportunity. I know. I want also for people listening to then also think to themselves, like, don't be persuaded by the buyers that will be like, no, 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 no. Like, I, I, I want to make this work. I think we can do it. We can figure something out here. Everything else looks good. You can kind of spot when someone's really trying too hard to make you work. And when you just have to call it out and it's like, listen, like in my experience, when these things are the criteria or these things are the reasons why you're looking at it and you're only looking at it for this use case and, and not all of this, in my experience, that doesn't usually translate to a solution that we both are satisfied with. Am I off? And you would have to get other people involved. And since that's not happening, I just don't see how that translates into us working together. Tell me I'm wrong, that sort of thing, putting it back on them. But I want you to go to something because you're getting me to think a lot of times, I don't know how to maybe put a little less shine on something like, I'm not talking about like over-promising, but it's like kind of like, dampering the mood a little bit. Cause you know, I get caught up sometimes on demonstrations when, you know, the customer's like, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? And me and my, my solutions consultant's more of a technical guy. He's like hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I'm like, we're saying a lot of hundred percents here. Yeah. Maybe could we be like 98, 95? And so we're afraid to go, you know, no at all, or even no, or we can do that. But how would you suggest we present our flaws in a way that doesn't totally make us look unappealing, but lessens the shine. Even if we can do something 100%, what should we be saying so that people think we're just real? We're not just robots saying we can yes to everything. The joke that I say that didn't make it in the book is the, uh, the wisdom of a supermodel, and that's Tyra Banks. You know, Tyra, she coined the term flossum right? Which is to embrace your flaws, but know that you're still awesome. So to your point, I, I'm not advocating anybody to go in your next sales engagement and be like, hey, this is why we suck, right? Like, no, flossum, like you're, you're flawed, but you're still awesome. That four, two to four, five means something, right? And so to your point, you know, I'll give you two examples. Number one was the first time that actually I had tried it in a B2B example. So I just read the research. I dug into the behavioral science research and it was screaming at me that transparency sells better than perfection, that leading with our imperfections or something we give up is better than pretending we're perfect or hiding it until the end. I was in New York for two days. I landed, as soon as I landed, first long meeting that was scheduled, rescheduled. So I'm like, great. So I got like three hours open. So I start heading to a Starbucks and I was the CRO of Power Reviews at the time. My VP of sales texts me. He's like, dude, we just got an incredible inbound lead. And it was from, yeah, we're all friends, Calvin Klein. So Calvin Klein, great lead for us. Like, fantastic. So I called my VP of sales as I'm going to Starbucks. I'm like, hey, tell me about it. And he's like, well, they filled out the lead form. We got it. We, we got on the phone with them. Uh, they're going to issue an RFP. Oh, goody. 
And then we'll all fly up to New York and do the full presentation and all that. And I was like, I forgot they're in New York. I'm in New York. I got an afternoon open. I know this is a one in a hundred shot. So no pressure on you or the rep. But one of you want to reach out to their head of e-commerce and just ask if he's around and he's available, if he wants to go grab coffee. And so they did. And it was the one in a hundred shot. The guy says, yes. So I head over, check in, go into his office. The guy is all business, small Manhattan office. As soon as I get in there, again, I thought we were having coffee. He hands me the HDMI cable for his monitor. And he's like, here, you can plug this in for your presentation. And I'm like, presentation? I look to my right and his whole team is wheeling chairs into his office. So now it's me and him and like there's seven other people in here. So we're like elbow to elbow, nine of us in this office. And this guy was like, he was New York in the best way possible, right? Like there was no small talk. He just came right after me. And he's like, Todd, listen, we're looking at your competitor. We're looking at you. How are you better? And like my wheels are turning because like I'm trying to figure out what am I supposed to do? What the hell's going on? And so again, all this stuff was fresh. So it was like, you know, I'm going to try. So my answer to how are you better than them was, hey, listen, um, can I actually share how they're better than us to start? And I know that sounds crazy, but they just released an add-on to their core functionality that not only do we not have, but wasn't even on a roadmap. Like it's not even a consideration of ours. And they're like, yeah, we hadn't even heard about it. What is it? I literally went into a sales pitch for this add-on as though I was the competitor. I was like, here's what it does. It does this. It's this retargeting thing for advertising, blah, 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 blah. And so they start talking. You could feel the mood change right away. It was like we were on the same team instead of it being vendor and buyer. They asked a couple of questions that I didn't even know the answer to because I was like, it just came out yesterday. Like, I don't know. One of them was like, what would you do if we needed it? And I was like, I, again, it just came out yesterday. <laughs> and so after about 10 minutes of this, they were like, uh, Todd, that's, it's not on our roadmap either. It wasn't even something. It might be in a couple of years. But uh, like, let's just get to that when we do. But again, we probably wouldn't go to a ratings and reviews technology company for something like that anyway. And I was like, all right, well, the reason we don't do that is we're trying to be great at this, right? This is our core. And instead of showing a presentation, I just showed them a couple of websites. 10 minutes later, that head of e-commerce stopped the meeting and said, hey, uh, have you all seen enough? And they're all like, yeah, we're good. They all get up, wheel their chairs out. This guy, this is the first time this had happened to me in my entire career. This guy pulls out a folder, opens it up, and it's his e-commerce budget. And there's a line on it, ratings and review software. And he's like, can you hit that? Now, I had never had anybody share their actual budget with me. And it was the first time I was trying this. And we talked about the budget issues. Fast forward 10 days, they decided not to do the RFP, not to have us all fly up to New York, and instead called it off, made a decision for us. And that was the first time, so 10 days and what normally would have been months. And I was like, all right, there's something here. So we kept we kept trying it and tweaking it a little bit to embrace things like, hey, like they've got this tool that we don't. The other example was, you know, back when we were first starting, where our reporting engine looked kind of gross. Like it was not as whiz-bang as our competitors at all. So we would start if a customer had reporting as an important consideration in their requirements, instead of hiding it and hope they're, they love everything else so much that they don't care, we would lead with it. 
and just say, hey, listen, before we get too deep into this, we're here investing our time because we think there's a great opportunity for partnership. But there's one thing that keeps us up at night and it's our reporting. It's behind, right? We're working on it. It's on our roadmap to fix it up. But if you saw it and held it up to the competitors right now, you would look at ours and go, oh, gross. And we know that's an important requirement. So if that's going to be a be all end all deal breaker, like let's talk about that now. And they're like, oh, all right, cool. And the trust that is built through doing that and the fact that all those barriers in our brain, that that filter that resists us from being sold to disappears. The relationship, we, like we ended up winning that deal, right? And reporting was an important consideration. Now, if they would have looked at our reporting and gone, yeah, you're right. That's not good enough. We're not going to be able to work with you. Cool. We just saved months and we get to go spend our time on opportunities we should win. Like, stop it with the trying to hope that we're so great that they we make up for it. Be honest, set proper expectations, but lead with it. Because when you do, there's magic that happens in that. I mean, I just love how you transition to like, here's all the stuff that they do well. And then look, okay, great. Like, here's what we do. The reason why we don't do that or the reason why we don't have that is because of this. And because we're putting all of our effort into this. And if this is like important, then let's like have that conversation. And if that's the the number one thing, then look, I've told you we we don't have that, but at least you knew right up front. And I feel like when people ask me, like just even myself, like, can you do this? And maybe it is like to the T, you could say, you know, hey, we do that thing that you you need, but here's where what we don't do. And we don't do that because we've really put our develop, you know, just explain what you're good at and why you don't do. You don't have to say, no, we don't do it. What you're looking for, we're completely off there. You can say that we do something, but then also say what we might not do that you'll find in the market. What we we won't offer is this little thing. And they're like, oh, we don't even care about that. Like, it's just a, and, and the other, and the other guys are like, that's our number one thing. They're like, that's our, that's our claim to fame. That's why we're better than this other company. And they're like, I could care less. Exactly. And there's two things to consider that the first thing is that example of me sharing what our competitor just released that we didn't do. And I sold it. Like, I was like, Hey, their first customer is Gap. Like they're in your in your space. So somebody likes this. Would you rather that come from you or would you rather lose control and have it come from them? Like I get to control the narrative. It's like, you know, the Eminem's movie Eight Mile at the end, right? You know, where he's doing the rap battle and he just talks about all the things that he knows that guy is going to rap against him and completely disarms the competitor as a part of the process. That's number one. Number two is to your point about hey, there's a reason why we don't do that. And it's X. It can never come across as they're idiots for doing it their way. And like in this, in this environment, um, the review space, we were trying to be the best at reviews. There were other companies that were trying to be the best at not only reviews, but you know, creating the environment around it. And like, if you want like a broader solution, we're not going to be it. Right. And that's cool. There's a reason why they're publicly traded and we're not right. Like they're great at what they do. They've got incredible logos, but for the companies that want this and want to do this best ever, that's our bread and butter and what we're trying to stake our claim. And that's up to you. Right. So never bashing a competitor, never bashing the requirements that a customer has by saying, Oh, why do you want that? Like 
now it's, hey, this is our chosen path. We're not a startup. We got a thousand customers that chose this path with us. And there's a reason, but they've got 3000 customers that chose them for a reason too. Let's vet that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so true. It's, it's, these are timeless concepts. And, you know, you, you talked about your dad in the beginning, how people came, uh, you know, he, he was the best man in, in one of his customers' weddings because of that trust that he had built. And I imagine that, you know, he had been in those conversations the exact same way 50, 60 years ago, selling whatever he was selling, just being completely upfront. And it kind of, you know, it makes me kind of think that, like sales hasn't changed very much. I mean, yes, the technology has, but you have this great podcast now where you're kind of bringing up these like tried and true concepts. And they're, they're literally things that people are saying now, just slightly different, even maybe more poignant, more, more of eloquently. And, yeah. you know, yeah, true salesmanship is the science of service. You know, Arthur Sheldon, uh, the, goat. Uh, the goat. And so, yeah, <laughs> tell me about what you think, like, what did your dad teach you? What have you learned? What made you want to bring these concepts from the history? Why do we need to hear these things? You said something in the book about, or maybe you lead off the podcast, right? And like, there's nothing new except the history and we don't know. Yeah. Um, so tell me why you think it's important to bring that up and yeah. to bring stories like your dad's up. My dad's story is pretty straightforward, but for me, I don't know how this happened. I, I found a book from 1945 on selling and I was reading it. And I was like, Wow, like you could literally take paragraphs of this and drop it in a LinkedIn, take credit for it, and people would be like, "Oh, that's brilliant!" The fire, uh, fire emoji, exactly. <laughs> right? And but the thing in that 1945 book was that it kept referring to older books, and I kept digging. I found up, I got a whole collection. Like this book is from 1918 that I'm holding for anybody who's watching. Like I wish you could smell it because it smells like history. Uh, this is the art and science of selling. Um, it, it's fascinating to me that those people could. They could freaking write back then, but the concepts are so true. Now, 80% of the concepts are completely true to today. Like literally you could take these paragraphs, like I tweet and post on Instagram daily, a quote from sales history because at sales historian, because I, I just want to bring the huge giant brains of sales past to the forefront. Now to your question, as I was digging into all of this, what I started to discover really, really quickly was, you know, in the 1800s, sales was slimy, you know, medicine men and these, these like there was all kinds of, there was drummers and bag men and it was, there was a lot of shady stuff going on. But the early, I started to discover that that changed in the early 1900s. From, you know, 1902 until probably 1930, sales was not only trusted and respected, but it was admired, you know, to the point that in 1916, uh, just to picture this for a minute, because you and I pre-show were talking about these, like the sales conference that you went to. Imagine 1916, Detroit, Michigan, the World Sales Congress, 3,000 attendees, and it's the first conference of its time bringing salespeople from around the country together. 3,000 of them in Detroit, keynote speaker, then President Woodrow Wilson. Now, imagine you go to a sales conference now and the president is the keynote. Like, that's crazy. Like, why? And then you add to it that the rest of the world was in World War I and we were about to get in it. And the president still is like, I got to go to this sales conference and keynote it, right? Like, it's crazy. But if you read his keynote yeah. and really think about it, 
back then, like when I said sales was trusted, respected, and admired, it was seen as the cog between the U.S. becoming a superpower and it not during the progressive era of the Industrial Revolution. So we, we've got all of this manufacturing happening because we figured it out. We've got Henry Ford's assembly. Like we figured out how to optimize all of this. Companies selling the right products to the right customers at the right price at the right time was the success or failure of those companies. And when those companies lifted, the economy lifted, they hired more. When they hired more, the whole country lifted. And so salespeople doing right by their customers was the difference between our country succeeding and getting a big head start and advantage over the rest of the world and failing. And so that's why like everybody was looking at salespeople as, hey, listen, go get them. Like, and it was such a cool profession to be in to the point where it was taught in all the colleges and it was even taught in high schools. There was 11 public high schools in Boston alone teaching salesmanship, which is the term they used at the time, right? That went up and then it went away, right? Because sales became slimy again. And what high schooler wanted to go to college to study to be a slime? Nobody. And it's supply and demand, right? So like, that's what really inspired me to look at this and go like every book, like this book's got a whole chapter on honesty. The quote that you read is probably from a blog post that I'd just written where I collected my 25 favorite quotes on honesty, transparency, and authenticity from the early 1900s sales, um, because that's what they talked about and they loved it. And I've got, I I don't know how we're doing on time. If you want me to rant about what happens, but I've got a theory about what happened. Yeah, go ahead. I want to ask one more question. I just want to like know, you know, because we think of it as a profession back then, you know, and it still is in many ways, but I feel like the lines between the word profession are so blurred and that everyone, and that's why we started this and why I started this, because my my go-to is to sell as human. We've had Dan Pink talk about this, that it's throughout the workforce and people don't consider it sales, but when you're building trust, you're honest, you're transparent, you're doing these things where people want to do things differently because they believe that you have their best interests at heart. I mean, that's a lot of times the essence of what salesmanship was back in the 1900s. So curious kind of why you think that is. And that speaks to where I was going with this too, right on in that, you know, if you think about a hundred years ago for you to sell required a face-to-face human interaction, right? Like I could send a catalog. There were like Tiffany's was publishing catalogs you know, in the 1840s. So like that's been around forever. But even though the telephone had been invented, it was not used pervasively in that period of time at all. Selling was done face-to-face, door-to-door, human-to-human. I had to look you in the eyes. And as a result, you almost couldn't help but care about each other and do right by each other. Now, there's the thing. Like when I look today and I see on LinkedIn, somebody had posted a, it was a chart of like all the sales technologies, the sales technology stack. And it was one page and the, the logos are so tiny, you can't even see them anymore because there's so many, right? Like technology, it, it can be used for good, but often it can be used for evil. And it, it, if you look historically, I believe it was technology that eroded our profession. And here's why. Human to human, door to door, face to face. I get to walk up and see that was selling. All of a sudden, this incredible gift called the telephone comes up. 
Now, it did not start being used in the sales world pervasively, especially for like outbound until the 1950s. And then not long after that, salespeople ruined it, right? This incredible gift of the phone that I don't have to leave my, my home, my office, whatever. I can pick up the phone and call you and then I can hang up and call somebody else. Like how incredible is that for salespeople? Yet we ruined it by, you know, especially in the last few years of like, uh, yeah, spamming people, auto dialers, calling people during dinner, not letting like tricking them, all that stuff to the point where a whole class of technologies had to be created to prevent salespeople from selling like, um, you know, caller ID, Dr. Shirley Jackson developed the technology that led to that, uh, voicemails, like all those types of things. And, you know, like the call blockers, that didn't work. The government had to get involved and create the do not call registry, which as of last look had like 220 million numbers on it, like some crazy freaking phone like list. Those people are on the do not call registry because of salespeople, right? We ruined this incredible gift. Now, fast forward to email. Holy cow, what an incredible gift we have that we don't have to leave our desk. I can send you a note and hit send and it doesn't have to get picked up and sorted and delivered in a week. It's instantly in your inbox. How incredible that is for salespeople. And then we ruined it again. You know, with the spamming and the generic messages and filling inboxes with trickery and trying to like trick people into opening emails and all that to the point where once again, a whole industry of technology had to be created, you know, spam filters and IP blacklists. And that didn't work. We had to get the government involved again with the can spam legislation and act of 2005, right? My point being, we keep taking this technology like the telephone, like email, like LinkedIn, which is another incredible gift that if you look at my LinkedIn connection request, you'd be like, Ugh, we're ruining it again, that we lost our face, right? We got blinded by what I think is a dirty word, a uh, five-letter word called scale, which is, oh, cool, this is great. This is going to help us by, let's just throw a bunch of crap and see what sticks, you know, versus being a human being and looking each other in the eyes. Like, we lost our face with one another. And as a result, we lost the idea that when we're selling, we're selling to another human being. And when we do, it impacts them at work, it impacts their company, it impacts them at home, it impacts their careers. And we don't see that when we're doing it over the phone or sending an email. Like th that's, that's my rant about technologies, is technologies can be used for good if we don't forget that there's a human being whose life is impacted by what we're talking to them about. And if we inject the word scale, and go, all this tech stack is gonna allow us to just like, wow, we're just the people are gonna be, let's get back to being human beings. Yeah, I mean, it's so true. I think, you know, if you think of, of all of the impact, the profound impact that not just your solution has for their business problem, but their lives, the people that they interact with, like the the people that you'll never meet that, that you'll impact. I mean, it's just, it is profound. I mean, the, the amount of and their careers. I mean, careers. these people are taking a risk when they buy from Absolutely. you, especially if it's a bigger dollar thing. And if you sold them up a river and all of a sudden they're getting fired because they bought from you, which I mean, back my, my first company, like, you know, I was selling for SAP in the late 90s. Like I, I did a deal with a company that was, it was over a $90 million deal. Now, can you imagine if we sold them a bunch of BS that didn't work? Those people 
wouldn't have jobs soon after that. Like that, you, you got to know that in your heart that you're making an impact on people's personal and professional Almost lives. like if you would see those, like you, you, it makes me think like, what if you heard those horror stories from like buyers who like lost their jobs or yeah. lost, like we have to see it, like we have to make it real or tangible, like to hear a story of like how someone regretted such a decision because of how they were being sold. And, you know, we could maybe, maybe like make, think a little twice about what we're saying. Cause you know, last thing I'll say is like, some people think just honesty is black and white, you know, you're either truthful or you're not truthful. And I think there's a whole spectrum in between where we think we're, you know, we're not totally lying, but we're not also being totally truthful either. We're kind of in the middle or maybe somewhere on one or the other sides, just kind of like painting a picture or something. And we don't want to admit to ourselves that we're just not, you know, just being outright hundred percent truthful. And, you know, if we knew that impact that, that like 1% of not being truthful could potentially like that one, maybe thing that we think is small, but the, the buyer totally ruined, could ruin their lives in a couple of years and the lives of, then we wouldn't, I mean, we would have, we place such more importance on that, like 1% of Oh, well, but I was truthful about all this other stuff, but I was just kind of like shady about this one thing that I don't think it was a big deal, but I didn't do enough work to actually ask. Maybe if we saw it, it was more tangible, we would have different results. Well, exactly. I mean, that that's it, right? And it's, you know, it's like anything like, hey, I'm going to go out drinking tonight, even though I know I'm going to feel like crap tomorrow. The same thing could be said with, you know, trying to convince a salesperson that like, hey, if I sell this deal, Six months from now, maybe somebody gets fired. Well, so what? Well, I think it's incumbent on companies to think about this idea of, listen, when you sell a customer, that comes back to you, certainly your organization. But if you want a customer to stay, buy more and advocate, because of the proliferation of reviews and feedback and everything you do, everything you buy, everything you experience, we can no longer hide things and expect to get away with it. It's just that era has ended. That's why I wrote the book when I did. Like it couldn't wait because then people didn't really know how to embrace this stuff. But I mean, that's the world we live in. Like we've got to be super careful about the deals we choose to pursue, the things that we say to customers, and especially the things we contract with a customer. Because I'm telling you that the the the, um, the karma comes around really really fast in 2021 when in the 1990s. What are we going to do? Call an 800 number? Write a letter? Like, who cares? Right? Like, the world has changed a lot. And we've got to figure out how to embrace this right now. But like, you can put it on Twitter. And, or you can like, put it on yeah, Twitter. Like, and Put it on everything. You yeah. can you can go to LinkedIn and call, like, text all of your buddies instantly that are peers in your companies, even ones you don't know, and go, stay away from these people. Like, it's just so easy to explode a company based on a lie versus just being a human being look them in the eyes virtually over Zoom and do right by them because that is the kind of thing that comes back to you in spades. More than you hitting your, you know, your quarter, it, like think longer term about the relationships with those people that you've made their lives better and your ability to go back to them. And if they've had a great experience, them coming back to you and your company and buying more, your stock becomes worth more. The next thing you know, you're IPOing and you're the next unicorn, right? That comes through being honest. None of it comes through even the white lies anymore. Like you just can't do it. Yeah, and um, the referrals flood in as well. 
Yep. I could talk to you for a long time, Todd. Um, the last question I have to be transparent, it's a fun question I ask all my guests and it's about you. Cause I think like in sales, like we're so much of our experiences as an, as human beings and people, we should get more of these like things out about ourselves. And so my question is just a fun one about you. And it's, you know, if I asked you, your wife, your family, what is one thing that could only and would only happen to none other than Todd Capone, just something that's like totally Todd, this one thing being totally transparent, what would that one thing be in your life? If, you know, it could be something that happened to you and an event, a thing you always do, what would that be? Oh man. You know, it's funny. Gosh, I I can't think of anything that really matches up with that. We've had some really weird things happen in this household though, that like, I, I almost feel like they happened to me so I could write about them. For example, uh, it was last year. Actually, it was probably earlier this year. I took my car in for service and there was a, a recall and they needed the part. And they're like, hey, is it all right if we keep the car overnight? And then tomorrow morning we get the part. It takes us five minutes to put in. We'll call you and you can come pick it up. I'm like, cool. I, no problem. Like I'm at COVID, like I, I'm not going anywhere. So we drop the car off. They do the work the next morning, 10 o'clock. I see on my, my phone, they're calling, but I'm on a call. Then they call again and then they call again and they call again. And I was like, I told the person I was talking to, I was like, Hey, can I call you back? There's something weird going on. So I answer it's the car dealership. I took it to the dealer because the car was still under warranty. Todd, can you get down here as fast as possible? And I'm like, what is the car ready? And they're like, no, but there was an incident. And I'm like an incident. What do you mean? And they're like, we prefer to tell you face to face. And I was like, dude, you got me on the phone right now. Like, what am I going to drive over there? Like, this should be fun. Tell me now what is going on. He's like, by middle of the night, somehow we we had the cars in the garage. Uh, A a group of people came, they burst through the garage with a stolen car, uh, went in and uh, jumped in three cars. There was like four of them in the car, jumped in three cars, took them and took off. And yours was one of them. Like, what? And so I was like, I'll be right there. I get there and the police are there and everything. My car is gone. They had it on the surveillance video. But the cool thing about it was they were so transparent, like to the point where I couldn't be mad with them. For example, like the guy that runs the dealership is there. And I was like, how did they get the keys? And he's like, they were in the car. And I was like, they're in the car. And he's like, yeah, the the garage is locked up. We've been here for 25 years. Like, who's going to come in? And like, with the thought of them coming in, I was like, all right, that's cool. That makes sense. He's like, for us to have the car, the keys in a lockbox, it's so inefficient for our, we just keep the keys in the car. Like, all right, cool. Like, it was stuff like that. And they're like, you want to see the surveillance video? Here's what happened. There's your car taken off. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Right. And then like, when we, we did recover the car, it was just on a Chicago city street running somewhere and like out of, like out of gas smelling like a Cheech and Chong movie. They had bought a bunch of like McDonald's. They spilled their drink on the dashboard, but like would they, they towed it back and these, like the Ford dealership, they did like the most incredible detailing. Like the car looked better than when I bought it. They fixed everything. It was fantastic, but it really all housed in transparency that they just told the truth right out of the get go other than like they wanted to have the face-to-face conversation, which I, I'm cool with the why behind that. But I, I could never be mad at that. I could not 
find it in me to be mad at them because they embrace the truth. I, I love that story. I had heard of that before, but I loved your 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 additional color to it. <laughs> uh, Todd, um, you know, where can people just learn more about uh, transparency, your work, um, find and connect with you in a very real, human, honest way? Yeah, I mean, uh, my website's transparencysale.com. Um, it's not the loveliest website. Like we're gonna, I'm completely overhauling it. But I just give away a bunch of free stuff there, blog posts, videos. Like I'm, I'm just one of those believers, and I'm not the first one that says this analogy that um, I'm never going to make a withdrawal unless I've made a bunch of deposits. So I want to be somebody making a deposit with all of you. And as such, you mentioned LinkedIn. I share a bunch of stuff there. If you want to follow or connect up with me, if you connect though, let me know where you heard me. That helps a lot. Versus I get I get lots of weird connection requests, including one today where the guys. Um, this picture was him in a hot tub. Like, I don't, I don't think I'm going to accept that one. Like, and there was no context at all. So like, give me some context, but the website's great. LinkedIn's cool. It, the sales history podcast, I'm taking a little break while I finish the manuscript for the next book, but I'll be firing that back up again. But there's a bunch of episodes there if you're so inclined. And then, like I said, I post quotes from sales history daily at Sales Historian on both Instagram and Twitter if you're interested in that too. All good stuff, gang. I can't uh, speak enough for it. Todd Capone, man. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. That was fun, my brother. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hey, gang. All right. Wow. You made it to the end. I know your time is valuable, so thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending your time here. If you heard a quote you liked, got a quick bit of value, or you have an idea that can help convince others to join, I urge you to take a minute and leave a five-star rating and review. That helps us gain influence and bring some really great guests on to add even more value to you and others. You can also always contact me directly to tell me your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. All my info is in the notes. Let's help convince anyone that they have the ability to sell well just by being great humans. And this podcast is proof. All right. See you on the next episode of Stories of Selling Human.